Now let's uh, call uh, together upon the name of the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our God, uh, we come into your sacred presence. We do so in prayer and in humble dependence upon the Spirit of the Lord. And we do so through the merit and worth of our Redeemer, the great mediator between us and you, our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Were it not for that blessed mediation, there would be an unbridgeable chasm between us on this day, and it would be impossible for us to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, How thankful then we are and should be for our Saviour, who has united heaven and earth, who has brought the sinful and the holy one uh, together in fellowship. Something that is truly incredible, something that is impossible to contemplate for man, but nonetheless, it is your plan of redemption. It has been accomplished, and wonderfully, it is being applied. We bless you for having elected us from the foundation of the world, having chosen us in him that we should be without spot and without blemish. We praise you, O Lord, for begetting us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We thank you for granting us the gift of faith by which we are now justified in him. We bless you for the great and unspeakable gift of the Holy Spirit who now dwells in our sinful hearts and who ensures our growth in grace so that one day we shall be glorified and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And when we contemplate that salvation in its origin and in its consummation, how wonderful a thing it is. And Lord, we pray as we assemble in this unusual manner that you would gather our thoughts around these good things. May the Lord himself be at the very forefront of our mind's eye. May we see none save him only. And that we might see him better, send thy light forth and thy truth. Let them be guides to me. And lead us to thy holy hill, even where thy dwellings be. And only your light and truth will bring us to the place of worship and give us the spirit of worship also. Lord, we pray for preparation for death and eternity. These are the two great realities before us. We are not promised a moment of life, but we are promised death and we are promised eternity. And in the light of these things, we pray for the wisdom to prepare, to count our days, and to give our hearts to learn thy wisdom and thy truth, that we might live thereby. And we pray that instead of magnifying worldly things, that we would see them as they are, that we would learn to sit by them lightly, and to use them without abusing them, and never to Invest everything that we have in gold and silver, which will perish with the using. We pray rather to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust will corrupt, and where thieves cannot break through and steal. We ask, O Lord, your blessing upon us all, even as you know us and as you see our needs. We are not even able to assess ourselves properly. As the apostle said, having examined himself, yet he knew he was not acquitted by that examination. For the one who knows us exhaustively is the Lord. Search us out, then we pray, by your Spirit, 
Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We pray for one another and ask that you would continue to keep us bound by the one Holy Spirit in the one bundle of life. We pray to value our congregation more as we are kept from meeting one another, as we were accustomed to do. And we pray that, being kept apart, that the longings of our heart might grow, that we might meet with one another again, and especially to do so in the house that is called by your name and is dedicated to your worship. O Lord, lift upon us in an appropriate time this hand of chastisement that has come down upon us. It is indeed your doing, it is your will, and it is no accident but a providence. And we pray to read it, and we pray to learn from it. And we ask that when this work is done, and when you have removed your rod, that we may be wiser for it, all of us, whether we are Christians or not, and that we would seek the things that belong to the life to come, and to our eternal well-being. Awaken those who are confined to homes in perhaps a way that they have never been before. Awaken them to the realities of life and eternity. We ask, O Lord, that they would consider that they have souls and that they are accountable for every thought that they have thought and every word that they have spoken and every deed that they have done. And uh, we pray that they might be ready to appear one day before the judgment seat of Christ. Be with the elderly, be with those who may be downcast in mind and raise them up, O Lord. Those who are sick and perhaps near to death's door too, O make them wise to call upon the living God who is the author of resurrection as well as life. Be with those who feel lonely, those who are persecuted and oppressed, your people throughout the world who are afflicted long before the rest of us have been afflicted. Those who know persecution at the hands of evil people, stand with them in the fire, we pray, as you stood with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego long ago. And when they pass through the waters, may they know that the Lord himself is with them. Be with us then, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Another reading and to our text, to the a prophecy that we looked at this morning, the prophecy of Zechariah and the first chapter of the prophecy. That's the second last book in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. And in chapter one, we'll just read the opening six verses where Zechariah has given his preliminary message to give to God's people. In the eighth month, of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iro the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so has he dealt with us. And to the words of our text, which are in verse 3, where God says to the people these words, return to me and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. 
Now, as I said, and I mentioned it in the morning too, you'll remember that both Haggai and Zechariah were raised up by God to speak to the people of God after they had returned home from their exile in Babylon. That exile itself was a 70-year chastisement upon the people. They had now come back to the land, and they came back, as the psalm tells us, with joy and with singing. And at this point, they have been 16 years in the land. But God has raised up two prophets uh, with special messages for the church. And the reason for these messages was simply because, although their beginnings back in the land were very, very bright, although they began immediately to rebuild God's temple, they saw it as their first task and they undertook it as their first task, the work through the years just slowed down and it had now come to a stop. And the people had now begun to invest their time and their energy in their own property, uh, beautifying their own houses, developing their own interests, and so on. And it's in that light and in that situation that Zechariah comes and says to them from God, this powerful message, return to me and I will return to you. Now, as we saw in the morning, these words imply that both concerned parties have actually moved their position. Somehow, maybe not in the same way, but somehow, the people have moved and the Lord himself has moved. Uh, They have turned away from him and he has turned away from them. And it's in that order. It's always in that order. It's the people that move first. And as a result of that moving, God moves himself. So his people have moved. They have drifted from God or turned away from him in that 16-year period. And they allowed that to happen. And we saw this in the morning because of their spiritual carelessness. It's so important, friends, to keep ourselves in the love of God and to keep ourselves from idols. The very last thing John says in his first letter, to keep ourselves from idols. But they allowed themselves, God's people allowed themselves to become discouraged. Opposition to their work, uh, the difficulty of their work, and so on. These These things meant that they gradually became discouraged They left off working and they started to focus on their own lives, just like I said, on their own things, on their own property and so on. In other words, they became worldly. Now, the word worldly or worldliness has become associated in people's minds with certain practices and behaviors. You may have your own idea as to what worldly means in a Christian. But it also means this. It also means that you simply give more time and energy to the things of the world rather than to the things of God. Uh, In other words, your heart is set more on worldly things. It can be your house. It doesn't need to be a football game or a boxing game or some music or something of that kind. Worldliness can simply be evidenced in an obsession with your own house or your own car or indeed your own work. Now, the result of this is that God has left them. They have left him, and he now has left them. And uh, we saw what that didn't mean in the morning. His spirit remains with them in a fundamental sense. And in fact, we read that in the passage that we read in Haggai. There is a deep and powerful sense in which his spirit always remains with his people. But nonetheless, He has also withdrawn his spirit from his people. He has removed the light of his countenance. That's the first thing he does. He takes away the light from the mind and the warmth from the heart. And as well as removing the light of his countenance, he has now upped it, as it were, by afflicting them with a judgment. Like a moth, he is eating away at their wealth and at their comforts. 
But in spite of that, uh, this verse before us is still a gracious promise. I will return to you. In other words, I'll come back. I'll remove the chastisement and I will give you again the light of my countenance so that you will enjoy my favor and you will delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. But this promise, wonderful as it is, I will return to you, wonderful as it is, is nonetheless conditional. And we can't get away from that. Uh, We sometimes uh, do try and do away with the conditional element in these things as though it's somehow hinting that we're earning the grace of God or that we're earning the light of his countenance, but that's not necessary at all. The promise is conditional. In order for me to return to you, he says, you must first return to me. Now, that's where we want to be tonight. That's what we want to look at. What does this mean, return to me? And I think we need to go a little deeper into the text to understand the fullness of what this means. Uh, There is a level at which it may seem obvious what it means to return to the Lord, but actually uh, it's not really as obvious as it seems. If you compare the time frames in Haggai and Zechariah, you'll notice that Zechariah is actually following up Haggai's prophecy. Now, it's... uh, an interesting thing in both Haggai and Zechariah's prophecies that they both have specific days and months on which they're given, and you have to connect them together to find the relationship. Haggai is actually the first messenger that God sent. And God sent Haggai to them to tell them that they were really covetousness and covetous in their behavior. Consider your ways he says. Consider your ways. And as well as considering your ways and your obsession with your property and your housing and so on, consider the way that I am now visiting you in a specific judgment which is affecting your life and your earnings and your property and so on. Consider this, he says. Now, um, I've often mentioned that covetousness is a difficult thing to see in yourself. In fact, it's difficult to see in anybody. It's easy to make a rash judgment that somebody is covetous because they have a a lot of possessions. But it's quite possible for a poor man to be far more covetous than a rich man because it's a matter of what's in the heart. But here you see what happens is that the word of God comes through a prophet to tell these people that God has judged them and that God has pronounced them covetous. That's the importance of what I mentioned in the prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there be any wicked way in me. In other words, show me that myself. And we need right now to have that prayer. We need that prayer ourselves. We need to be open to the scrutiny of God. We need to be be open to God saying to ourselves through the word here and through this sermon itself that this is me. This is my problem. I am a worldly woman. I am a worldly man or a boy or a girl. So the prophet came to tell them that that is what they were. The result, we're told, is that the fear of God came upon the people and they started their work again on the temple. Now, you would have thought externally that that meant everything was fine. And of course, A lot of the time, externally, things can look fine. But everything wasn't fine. God had to send Haggai back to them just a few weeks later. And as well as sending Haggai, he sent a second witness, Zechariah. And he gave them a message for the people. Why? What was wrong? Well, what was wrong in essence was this, although they were back on the task, their hearts and their souls weren't really back in the task. The fear of God moved them to resume their duty, but it didn't mean that they had any real pleasure in that duty. They were just doing it because it was their duty. In other words, they weren't moved by 
the wonderful motivations of love and of faith and of hope, faith in God, hope in God, love for God, and indeed love for people. It wasn't these great motivations, but simply the knowledge that this was what God would have them do. And the knowledge, too, that the judgment that had come upon them with this moth eating away at everything they've got, the knowledge, the realization that that was from God. So that was enough in itself to move them to start working. But no real pleasure in it. Reminds us, I suppose, in a way, of the laborers in the vineyard, in the parable which Christ himself gave. You'll remember that they were toiling away in the vineyard and toiling industriously, but underneath that toil, there was a murmuring spirit. And it didn't come out until much, much later, but it turns out that a lot of their labor had been done in the wrong spirit, motivated by fear, not by faith and by love and by hope. Now, if we ever begin to work for the Lord like that, if our primary motives are just duty and fear, and if we don't really have love and hope, the likelihood is, and I want you to listen carefully to this, the likelihood is that you will again cease your labor for the Lord and that you will again go back to the world. Back to your house, back to your car, back to your work. And that is both sad and dangerous. And I'll tell you why it's both. Going back to the world again like that is, first of all, sad. It's sad because the world never actually satisfies anybody, but especially it doesn't satisfy a Christian. It can't. You, Christian friend, have been awoken to higher things. You have tasted something better and higher. Your calling is now heavenly and it is heavenward. And the new life that God has given you, the new existence that you now have as a man or a woman in Christ means that you can never, ever, ever be satisfied by the things of this world. And uh, I began that by saying that nobody really can be. And that's because even if you are just a worldly person, not reborn, if all you have is your old nature, well, that old nature too was originally made to be in communion with God. That's why that nature can't be satisfied either with the things of this world. You will eventually weary of them. But the sad thing is that unless you have discovered the true secret of life, the secret of eternal life, then you will die. You may die weary. You may die knowledgeable enough to understand that life really meant not that much at the end of the day as you try to live it and as you try to enjoy it, but none the wiser. But especially the world can't satisfy a Christian. Or, or to put it in a, in a way that really connects with where we are today, we could just simply say that the world is not a substitute for the light of God's countenance, which you've lost and which worldliness always loses you. It loses you the light of God's countenance, the sense of his favor, sense of his favor, his power in your mind and in your life, and the real, the true joy of the Lord. That's what we sang in the psalm, in Psalm 4. Who will show us good? The psalm was written like the psalm before it in connection with the people following Absalom instead of following David. And what they want is, of course, I mean, here we go again, it's economics. Who will show us good things? Who will give us corn? And who will give us wine? And David instead prays, Lord, lift upon us the light of your countenance. Because, he says, that means more to us than joy to them at harvest time. And you can imagine that, well, just as God's people had a festival to acknowledge the harvest and to give thanks for corn and wine, while other people had their own festivities and the other ways of marking an abundance of corn and wine, and most of them would be carnal, fleshly, and frivolous. But whatever joy they got in that, David says, it does not come near to the joy that we get from the light of your countenance. That's what 
we want, we've come to know it, we've come to love it. So above all things, Lord, give us that. And how true that is. And only the Christian can say that because only the Christian has tasted and seen it. The brightness, the goodness of God's countenance. So a return to the world again is sad. But a return to the world again is also dangerous. If you cease to labor and if you go back to these things, it's dangerous. Why? Well, because unless these people take this opportunity to return fully to the Lord, unless they return in their hearts, unless they return with joy and with faith and with hope and with love, uh, they will go back and a worse thing will come in them. Instead of coming upon them like a moth, God will up the judgment and he'll devour them like a lion. That's why Zechariah hears here refers to their fathers in verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Their fathers, in the main, have died. Most of them died in the land in which they had now returned. And they died under the sword and under the famine and under the pestilence. The messengers that God said he was going to, to send. Others died in the exile. But although they're dead, they're still speaking. And the message that came down to them and the message that came down from the exiles in Babylon and even from the few that are still living, the message was just this, as the Lord of hosts determined to do according to our ways and our deeds, so has he dealt with us. In other words, God always means what he says. His chastisements and his punishments are no idle threat. And he's saying the same to ourselves too. The judgment that's upon us in one way is as nothing. God has just breathed upon us, but it's amazing how much he stopped by just his breath. But it is a warning. And we're to take the opportunity and we're to, in our own chambers and in the quietness of our hearts and in our secret places, to re reflect, look back, read over church history, read over the history of the scriptures and the men of women and God there, and the history of the church down through the years. God's judgments are no idle threat. Your prophets, your fathers, where are they? They are dead, most of them, but they still speak. And down through the years, their warning still comes to you. Let it ring in your ears that just as the Lord determined to do, he did to us. His chastisement is real. Don't take it lightly. And the prophets, do they live forever? No. They've gone too. Isaiah is gone dead. Jeremiah, gone, he's dead. Amos, Hosea, Joel, gone, they're dead. They served their own generation. They fell asleep. You believe them now, and you revere them now. Well, then listen to them. Their words last too. The prophets have gone, yet, he says in verse 6, surely my words and my statutes, which I gave to these prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So do you think they will not overtake you? That's what he's saying. There is a consistency in the dealings of God with his people. These prophets who have long gone rebuked your fathers just as much for covetousness as they did for outright idolatry. And you now, after just 16 years in the land and after a bright beginning, are going back to covetousness. Do you expect that you will escape the judgment of God? So I don't want you to return to working on my temple with a heavy heart. I don't want you to return to your labor. I want you to return to me. I don't want you to resume Christian work or an act of Christian membership. I want you to return in your heart to me. I don't want you to return with your hands. I don't want you to return with your lips or with your feet, at least alone, but with your heart. 
And if you return to me with your heart, God is saying, I will return wholly, completely to you, and I will bless you abundantly. So the more you turn to me, the more indeed I will turn towards you. There's a sense in which <coughs> there's a sense in which the people of God here resuming their work on the temple are it's not perhaps the best um, comparison, but there's a sense in which they're almost like the army of Israel that Ezekiel saw in his vision in the 37th chapter. He preached to the dry bones, you remember. And as he preached to the dry bones, there was a power accompanying that. It was enough of a power anyway to make the bones reassemble and the sinew and the muscle to form upon the bones and the skin to stretch itself out. Everything came into place and the army stood up. But they were lifeless. They were lifeless. Um, they were halfway there. But, but the critical thing was missing until the prophet breathed or prayed to the breath that the breath would blow upon them, the breath of God, the life of God, and that animated them. That's, that's a little like these people here, the fear of God and the knowledge that he was chastising them was enough to get them back to work, but not, not, it wasn't enough to keep them at that work. Unless they returned properly, they would soon let down their tools and go back to their houses again. Now, Haggai, incidentally, is the first one sent again to pick up on this. They had responded to him by going back, but now he goes a second time. And he, he tells them, he tells them what's wrong with them. He says, when you look at the temple that you're building, he says, how do you see it in comparison with what was here before? There are a very few of you here who actually saw this temple as little children when it first stood. How, how do you now see this one? He says, is it not in your eyes as nothing? In other words, I know that's what it is in your eyes. And God has told me that that is how you see it. You see it as nothing. But he says, be strong because I am with you. And my spirit remains among you. So don't be afraid. Haggai has sensed their defeatist attitude. And this defeatism, you see, has quenched their hope. And their faith and their expectation. Now that, that's easy for that's easy to happen. And going back to where we were last Sabbath day, it's especially easy to happen when you've been careless with the armor of God. If you've been careless with the armor of God, your hope and faith and expectation will start to be quenched. You see, they began to think, well, you know, this it's just never going to be the same again. That's what they're thinking. It's never going to be the same again. When we look around us at the stonework, when we look at the ruins, when we remember Solomon's kingdom, the glories of the kings, it's just never going to be the same again. And what's more, they say, what's the point of really working again? We know that the minute we start, the Samaritans will be back in our case and the authorities will be back in the case. And as Zerubbabel himself said, it's like a huge mountain in our way. Everything is just like a vast mountain that we cannot possibly move out of its place. We might be laboring in a good cause, but as far as we can see, it's a lost one. And even if God somehow tells us that it's not lost, well, it looks lost and it feels lost. And over and above that, there's no obvious sign that the Lord is with us. Is there any obvious sign that the Lord is blessing us? Where is he? Here we are just working on a building, but, but where really is he? And Haggai's message is essentially saying, this temple is something, you know. Zechariah later was to say that the seven eyes of God were to go to and fro over the whole land and nothing was as pleasing to him as the temple that was taking shape. Nothing. My glory, he says, will fill this temple. And it will fill it in such a way that it will utterly eclipse any glory that it ever saw before. 
And what's more, he says, don't say that I'm not with you because he says, I am with you. I am with you. According to the covenant that I made with you, he says, my spirit dwells among you. I may have withdrawn the light of my countenance for a reason, he says, and I still haven't restored it, but I am still here. And Zechariah therefore adds, return, return properly, return fully, return to me with your hearts, and I will return to you. Now, I think when we take the prophecies like that, in the order that they're given, we understand the situation better. And I think it helps us to understand the kind of return that God was wanting the people to make. When God wants you today to return to himself, he doesn't want a half-hearted return to work. He wants a full and wholehearted return to the Lord. He doesn't just want you to labor for him. He wants you to labor in him. And he doesn't even want you to labor as such or to turn to labor, but just to turn to the Lord himself, full of faith and hope, and believing that his loving kindness is better than life. And if you turn to him like that, his countenance will shine. And your labor will be in the right spirit. And it will bear fruit. Now, the thing is, it's at this point that you need to be wary. It's at this point that a paralysis is likely to occur. And the paralysis will be produced by the devil and by his cunning. There's a way in which he's no mean theologian. You may say, and the devil may encourage this, you may say something like this, and it sounds so good. I can't return to God unless he returns to me. You're telling me there to return to God and God will return to me, but I'm telling you that I can't return to God unless he returns to me. And am I not correct in saying so? How can I possibly awaken faith and hope? Are these not God's graces and gifts to give? Surely his return must go before my return. Now the subtlety in that, friends, is that that's indeed true. All our turnings are of the Lord. All our turnings. Nothing we do, nothing we're commanded to do is actually done of ourselves. We do it because we are enabled to do it. We're given the heart and we're given the desire to do it by God himself. That was through of her very first beginnings when we heard the gospel saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will certainly be saved. And we said, well, I cannot believe, but, but the Lord gave you the heart to believe. He gave you the vision to believe. He, he gave you the will to follow. These things came into your life. All our turnings are of the Lord. It's what Augustine famously said in his confessions. Give what you command, O Lord, and command what you will. Or turn that round, command what you will or what you wish. Command anything, but give what you command. In other words, you command faith, well, give faith. We understand that. And we saw it this morning in Psalm 80, uh, where the writer to the psalm is considering Israel as a vine, um, a vine that's been transplanted from Egypt by the power of God and planted in the land that was the Canaanite land. They were expelled out of it by God in judgment, and Israel, God's people, were planted in it. Uh, but the vineyard's been now open to attack. It's been ravaged. And the question in the psalmist's mind is, why have you allowed it to be so? You've left, you've forsaken the vine. Well, of course he has, but he's forsaken the vine because the vine forsook him. But then suddenly the psalmist says, Oh, let thy hand be still upon the man of thy right hand. Let your hand, O oh God, your right hand, your hand of favor, your, your hand of honor and your hand of power especially, let that hand be upon Christ himself, the man of your right hand. Place your hand upon him. And Nehemiah 
often used to say that the hand of the Lord was upon me. The hand of the Lord was upon me for good. The expression there meant that, that God was empowering him and that God was enabling him. God was guiding, empowering and enabling him. Well, here let the, let the hand of power and the hand of honor be upon Christ. And as Christ ministers to us, the psalmist says, we will not go back. So henceforth, we will not go back nor turn from thee at all. And you can say, see, there's the proof. Only Christ can make me turn. I can't turn. You know, the, the, the devil can quote and twist Psalm 80 to you like he quoted and twisted Psalm 91 to Christ. Psalm 80 is not to render us powerless. It's actually pointing us to the source of our power. It's showing us how to turn. It's pointing us to Christ, pointing us to Christ. What you need to return to God, well, do you know what you need to return to God? Instead of sitting there saying, I can't return unless, unless I'm returned by him. Well, no. What you need to return is absolutely the spirit of Christ. Yes, without a doubt. He is the energizer. Yes. He is the one who will enable you to labor, to do the work of building up the church of God in the land. He's the one who will enable you to do that in faith and with a real living hope and with love towards God and his people and indeed a fallen, a fallen world. That's the thing that sanctifies our labor. That's the thing that makes it fruitful. Fruitful, yes, to God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. But you say, well, but that doesn't solve my problem, you see, because I don't have that kind of power. If only I had the Holy Spirit like that, the Holy Spirit would enable me to work like that. Right? That is indeed true. But how is that a problem? Is the Holy Spirit distant from you? Is the Holy Spirit a million miles away from you? Is the Holy Spirit resident in heaven, but not upon the earth? Is he resident on the earth, but a million miles away from you? No. He's in your heart, is he not? As a Christian tonight, hearing these words, worshipping, is the Spirit of God not in your heart? And is he not in your heart as a source of power? Is that not what he's there for? Is he not there as an energizer of your soul, of your spirit? Peter says in his letter, the, the second letter in the first chapter, Jude, it's the second letter, first chapter, even as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, I think uh, Smeaton, the theologian, is right in saying that divine, oh, sorry, I think it was John Brown, who says the divine power there, he says, is actually a descriptive term for the Holy Spirit himself. Even as this divine power, in other words, the Holy Spirit has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And uh, that occurs in the passage where he's telling us to add to our faith and to grow in grace, even as his divine power has given to us. Now notice he doesn't say, will give you. And it's interesting that he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that the Holy Spirit will give you everything that pertains to life and godliness, but has given you. Now, in what sense has he given it to you? Well, in the sense that he's given you himself. Now, he may not have unlocked that power. He may not have unlocked a full resource of faith or a full resource of hope or a full resource of love. But he has it to unlock. And he has it to unlock in your own heart. In other words, you have everything pertaining to the life of godliness in your soul right now because the Holy Spirit himself is in your soul right now and he has these treasures to give. Now, um, how can the Spirit release it? And you may feel a sense of excitement about this and you may say, well, is that really true? Is, is all the power I need actually resident within me? Well, yes, it is. Well, how do I unlock it then? 
Well, friend, Christ taught you how to unlock it. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And you may say, well, look, I can't ask, and I, I don't know how to seek for that, and I, I can't knock. Don't tempt God with words like that. A beggar knows how to beg. Why does the beggar know how to beg? Because he's got to beg. He's got no choice but to beg. If he knows he's needy and a beggar knows he's needy, the beggar will beg. Well, if you know you need life and power, and if you need love and faith and hope to do the Christian work that's set before you in the way in which you should, ask God. Ask God for new faith. Ask God for new hope. Ask God for new love. And he will give. Notice again what you've got is promises. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened. Not it might be, perhaps or maybe, but it will happen. But notice again, the promise is conditional. Ask, seek, knock. And Christ encourages you to do that by saying, most of you are fathers. Many of those who listen to him and he, say, he says, do you not know how to give good gifts to your children? If they're asking you for food, if they have that basic need, that really basic need of food, they ask an egg or they ask for bread. He says, are you going to give them stone instead of a bread? Will you give them a scorpion instead of an egg or a serpent instead of a fish? These are all things that, although it seems strange to us, actually look like the things they're substituting. A scorpion can look like an egg, a serpent can look like a fish, and a stone can look like a piece of bread. No, he says, you, you won't give him a substitute. You, you won't give your child what he doesn't need and what won't benefit him. No, he says, you'll give the good gift, you'll give the food. Well, how much more, he says. Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to the one who asks him? How much more? So, fundamentally, you'll notice that if you are going to really return to God, and if God's going to really come back to you, if you're going to return to God in such a way that he'll return back to you, what you fundamentally need to do is to return to the throne of grace. You'll need to come to God. You don't need to learn about him or to think about him. You need to come to him. You need to speak to him. You need to pray. You'll need to ask him for mercy for the, the foolishness with which you've slackened your work and the foolishness that you've shown in becoming worldly. You need to ask mercy for that first. And then you need to ask for grace to help you in your time of need. Grace. Every resource that God's got to give. Lord, give it to me. Give me faith. Give me hope. Give me love. So that I'll do everything I do well and in the right spirit. As Hosea says, return to God, take words with you. That's what Hosea says. It's a marvelous expression, take words with you. Don't just fall before God, but speak, take words. Say something like, put it in your own words, Lord, I have sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Grant me forgiveness for my sin. Give me the graces of the Spirit, much more than his gifts, but that I might do my work for you and serve you in whatever capacity I do that with the right spirit of faith and hope and love. Give me wholeheartedness in the things that belong to you. Give me a heart that is full of love and devotion to you and to the things of your kingdom. Do you think that God will refuse a prayer like that? Do you think God's going to keep the light of his countenance from you much longer? If you pray like that, 
Will the spirit not begin to lift up Christ before you? Will you not immediately start to fill up with these good things? Do you not think you'll start to go out with a a better spring in your step? Do you not think that the Lord will return with the light of his countenance? Do you not think that your mind will start to come to peace? That you'll get ever more clearer light? Do you not think your heart will warm as the sun begins to shine on it again? as, As the light of God's countenance comes upon it, do you not think that you'll begin to warm? Well, that's what happened to the people who worked. Uh, we have it, the conclusion of all this, in the wonderful words of Ezra. Um, and, and he records it for us. Well, you don't need to turn it up unless you can turn these things up quickly. But you have it in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14. Now, this is just, let me close with this. This is just after um, Haggai and Zechariah have prophesied. Now, listen to what Ezra says. Ezra 6.14. These are wonderful words. So the elders of the Jews built. Now, that doesn't just mean the elders, but including the elders, the overseers. They built and they prospered. So their building wasn't any old building, but it was a building that prospered. The blessing of God was upon it. Let me read it again. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying or the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. These two messages that God sent filled these people with desire and with longing. And they built and they finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Notice how God turns the hearts of these heathen kings to work for the extension of his own kingdom. Oh, it means a lot to return to God. It means that we return with no reserve. It means that we ask, and we seek, and we knock. But you know, when we do that, God will return to us. Not just with an external enabling power, but well, with what he's really got to give. These wonderful, inspiring, energizing, or motivating graces of faith and hope in the future and love. What are we without these three What are we without these three? Faith in what God is doing. Hope in what will be accomplished one day. And love. The greatest of these is love. So return to me and I will return to you. A wonderful conditional promise. Fulfill the condition and watch God fulfill the promise. Let's close by uh, singing in Psalm 80 on page 334, and we're singing to the tune Morven. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.